This might be the first time in history agriculture producers can generate their own energy. One could argue before rural electrification happened in Alberta, producers were already generating their own energy. They managed woodlots for firewood, bred workhorses, and put their own blood, sweat, and tears into the land. Thanks to advances made in solar, geothermal, and wind energy, agriculture producers can generate energy for themselves, diversify their farms and ranches, and even help their communities move away from coal. So now there's a few additional things an agriculture producer can do when the sun is shining. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're revisiting on-farm solar. So, Lee, you're going to do a much better job of introducing yourself than I can. So I'm going to hand things over to you. I think your, your screen is already shared. I'm sure everybody can see it. Um, so yeah, go ahead and take it away. All right. Well, thank you so much for the uh, introduction, Marie. And um, thank you, everyone, for, uh, for joining in today to learn a little bit about more about uh, solar energy on the farm. Um, I am the sales manager for a company out of Calgary called KCP Energy. Uh, we're a full-service solar design and installation company um, that has been installing solar uh, in Canada and for Western Canada since 2007. Um, and uh, yeah, we kind of serve the BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan markets. What you just heard was the beginning of a webinar we did in November of 2020 with Lee Sennell of KCP Energy. The other person talking was Marie Galanka. Marie is the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions Agriculture Program Coordinator. If you've ever done a webinar with us, and we've got a bunch of webinars coming up in the fall, you've probably met Marie before, but you met her over Zoom. As we often do at Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we took the webinar recording and turned it into this podcast episode. But why are we doing another podcast episode on on-farm solar? One of the first podcast episodes we did was on on-farm solar. That was episode two. Then we looked at it again in episode 18. And in a way, we talked about it in episode eight. As Lee points out, a lot has changed in the solar industry in the last few years. The amount of investment that's going into renewable electricity, specifically in solar, just because solar is one of the very few types of um energy sources that can be done at a very, very small scale or at a very large scale. So um, as opposed to say wind or hydro that where it's not applicable or even, you know, typical fossil fuel generation is also, you know, more difficult. Um, I mean, a generator would be, would be kind of the, the exception there, of course, but um, yeah, it, it's one of the few that, that is able to be installed, you know, pretty much anywhere. So that's why there's so much investment and, and development happening. Um, panels these days are almost a commodity. Um, and, uh, which I'm sure a lot of the farmers here understand very well. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, we, there is some regulation that gets imposed by the government of Canada on the types of panels that are even allowed to be installed in Canada or imported. Um, so the government does do a little bit of, uh, I guess some of the heavy lifting to make sure that we do get good quality components here. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the industry is, is evolving at a very rapid pace. I've only been in the industry for five years and it's, I don't even recognize it. It made headlines in 2020 that the price of installing and operating a solar system had dropped 90% over 10 years. In fact, the price has dropped 8.5% 
since we started the podcast, which was back in 2018. Unfortunately, in Alberta, we don't really have the farm energy and agro-processing program anymore. So FEEP. FEEP was a cost-share program. It would offset some of the costs of a solar system that was being installed on a farm or a ranch. I do have some good news. There is a new federal program that I'm going to talk about a little bit later in this episode that may be able to help cover some of the costs of an on-farm solar system. Uh, the program's called ACT. It's through AAFC. But like I said, I'll talk about it a little bit later. So as you can see, a lot has changed in the solar industry since we last did an on-farm solar episode. So we figured doing an updated version would be a useful thing. Plus, Lee just does such a fantastic job of explaining in really simple terms, simple terms that a guy like me who knows nothing about electricity can understand. I also really like that in his presentation, he was totally willing to answer those very common but very legitimate questions people have about solar. Like, Alberta gets a lot of snow. How will snow impact the effectiveness of my solar system? Um, so when it comes to snow and solar, uh, when you look at, I guess, you know, the, if you're, if you're considering it from, you know, reducing your cost of energy that you, that, uh, you have to pay for, um, when you do your energy generation forecast, at least for, I can only speak for ourselves, of course, um, down. So you'd have your shoulder months being, you know, um, your winter months, and then your, uh, your summer months right in the middle are going to be when you produce the most amount of energy. So... Although, yes, the snow does reduce the amount of output those panels will receive. And if you're able to, to take that snow off, that's great. However, um, during the winter months, I mean, you know, if you look at the, you know, the, you know, the six darkest winter months, as much as that's 50% of the year, it only accounts for maybe about 15% of your annual production. So you're not actually even getting that much production during that, those times of year anyhow. What about that hail that usually comes crashing down on us every summer? You know, panels do have to be hail tested at the manufacturing facility as part of their manufacturing process. Um, so they are very resilient to hail um, and uh, have tempered glass that is installed on top of them, kind of similar to what you'd have on your, on your car windshield. So very strong glass that can withstand a substantial impact. I mean, I won't say they're invincible, but uh, it's a very, very low likelihood that a hailstorm would uh, would destroy the panels, uh, especially as well because panels, again, often mounted at an, on an angle, anywhere from, say, 15 to 40 degrees. So when the hail hits it, it's unlikely you'd be experiencing a direct impact. It'd be most likely a glancing impact. Uh, area we can point to is there was a huge hailstorm in northeast Calgary that happened this past summer. I think it was in June or July. And I mean, the, there's still houses there that don't have any siding on them, but we've been removing the panels from the system, which are completely intact, despite the uh, roof all around the panels being a complete write-off and also the siding being a complete write-off. Um, so the panels, we remove them, they're gonna re reinstall the siding, reinstall the roofing, and then we're just putting the same panels back on because there's no damage to them. How long will my system last for? Um, so the panels have kind of a, a and silicon degrades very slowly over time, about, about half a percent per year. Um, so essentially by year 25, they're guaranteeing that, yeah, you, you got 85% as much output else for you. And just how and where do I get started if I'm considering a solar system for my farm or ranch? Um, in terms of what you'd actually need to, to reach out to a company, all you really need is a power bill and your address. Uh, with those two things, you should be able to get a, a high level assessment and proposal 
uh, to see what it can do for you from any, you know, any, any company that, uh, that knows what they're doing. In the first half of this episode, Lee's going to explain how solar works and how getting connected in Alberta works. In the second half, Lee goes over the benefits of generating solar energy from the comfort of your farm or ranch. Yeah, we'll kind of get right into it here. Before we uh, got going to get too deep into things, I just want to start with a little bit of basic information so that everyone's on the same page for how solar energy systems work um, and produce electricity so that you can reduce your energy bills on your farm. Um, if you look at a, a typical, you know, grid-tied solar energy system, uh, you're going to have panels mounted on a building or on a ground mount rack somewhere. Um, and these panels are going to produce direct current or DC electricity whenever they get exposed to sunlight. Um, this DC power flows to an inverter, which converts that DC to AC, alternating current, uh, to make it usable within your home or farm. Um, that inverter that does that conversion, it's going to track how much energy is produced. And then it's also going to be tied into the building's electric panel. Um, so that could be a sub panel or any any electric panel or distribution panel within the, the farm system. Um, or often uh, the case in a lot of farms, you'll have a pole um, with a, tr like a transformer in the middle of the yard somewhere with a power meter on it, kind of at the bottom that you see in the bottom right of the slide. Um, and uh, that's gonna be pretty typical for most farms. They're gonna be, you know, uh, multiple feeds potentially coming off of that, going to different uh, outbuildings on the property. Um, so the, the solar power that gets generated uh, supplies all of the site energy needs that are behind that electricity meter. Um, and if there's more electricity that gets generated than is actually required by the site, that energy gets exported to the grid for credit on the power bill. Um, and if it isn't providing enough electricity to meet the site's energy requirements, it automatically pulls energy from, from the power grid to power the loads. Whatever that shortfall is, it'll automatically take that. Um, this is all facilitated by a uh, bi-directional smart meter, um, which is provided by the utility uh, when the system is installed. One common misconception about solar that I often find is that batteries are required to make the system function altogether. Um, batteries are definitely an option that can be added to any solar energy system, kind of like a backup generator so that, you know, whenever, if you have a grid outage, uh, you can continue to provide power to the entire site or just, you know, certain loads on that site, uh, depending how big the battery is. Um, but uh, yeah, now that we have a little bit of background on, you know, how the energy actually gets produced and, and, and supplied uh, to a site, um, we can kind of look at, uh, you know, how the utility allows for these solar energy systems to be installed altogether. So uh, in Alberta, um, you know, we have a, a system called micro or net billing um, and all of and that's actually facilitated through the Alberta microgeneration legislation. Um, so all solar energy systems in Alberta that are used to offset a site's energy are considered a microgenerator. Um, and under the microgeneration program, you're able to connect a solar energy system that produces energy independently of the power grid. Um, as we saw before, uh, when electricity is generated by the, system, by the solar energy system, it powers the site energy loads first, any excess is sent to the grid for credit on the bill, uh, any shortfall pulled from the, uh, from the grid, like at nighttime, for example. Um, now, within the Alberta microgeneration program, there's kind of two different types of systems altogether. 
Um, you have large microgenerators, which would be you know systems that are 150 to 5,000 kilowatts. Um, and for reference, there, I mean, your typical residential home, um, you know, uses about 8,000 kilowatt hours of power per year, which means they would need about a seven kilowatt system to power that house, you know, 100% throughout the year. Um, so large systems are, are quite large, so at, from 150 to 5,000 kilowatts, and then small systems are anything below 150 kilowatts. Um, the main difference between the two is how the, you know, any excess or exported energy to the grid is treated. Um, small microgenerators, uh, when they, you know, when they provide excess power, they supply excess power to the grid, um, they get uh, credit from their energy retailer um, that's going to be essentially the same amount um, uh, that you pay per kilowatt hour, whatever your retail energy rate is. So say if it's, you know, six or seven cents per kilowatt hour is pretty typical. You know, if that's your retail energy rate, whatever you pay for power for your retail rate, when you export, you get that same amount back. Um, and however, for large microgenerators, it's a little bit different. So large microgenerators, whenever they have excess generation that gets you know, supplied to the grid, um, the amount that they get credited is going to be um, whatever the Alberta power pool pricing is at that time of export. So every hour of the day in Alberta, there's a different pool price and a large microgenerator would just simply receive whatever that pool price was at that time. Um, so tip, on average, though, it's going to be a little bit less than what you'd receive if you were a small microgenerator when you export. Um, so now that we understand a little bit about how microgeneration works and the different types, uh, we can look at how you would actually go about sizing uh, a, system, a solar energy system for microgeneration. Um, so when you look at, you know, applying for these microgeneration systems, the utility is going to request that you provide them with an estimated amount for the annual production of that system that's, that it's expected to produce per year. Um, and it's kind of important that you don't, you know, your system isn't expected to produce substantially more than you actually use per year because the utilities do reserve the right to limit export credits to whatever your site's annual consumption is. Um, although this isn't really often done in practice, um, they do reserve that right. So typically you want to try and size it for, you know, at most around 100% of your actual annual usage. Um, and to know how much energy you actually use, uh, often it'll be right on your power bill. It'll kind of show you a, a graph of how much energy you use in the past 12 months. Um, but if not, uh, it's quite easy as well. You can just have, request that information from your, the utility company and they'll provide you with uh, sp site-specific historical consumption data for that site. Um, so especially, you know, if you just bought a new farm and you don't have any data, you can still pull the, you know, data from, uh, from previous uh, owners. Um, now, the amount of energy that a system can produce is also, of course, going to vary by geographic location. And that's what that map uh, on the slide here is showing is essentially the, the more intense red and orange bits of that map are going to be where you're going to receive more production. And of course, uh, towards the north of the province, you're going to receive less. Um, now, I believe Medicine Hat is the highest producing municipality in Alberta, but the best in Canada is actually in Regina. So, you know, Medicine Hat is going to be close to one of the best places in all of Canada. And Southern Alberta in particular is going to be one of the best places um, in, uh, in Canada altogether. And then just globally um, is actually pretty, pretty high on the global scale as well. So pretty, pretty phenomenal solar resource in Alberta that, uh, that we're lucky to have. Um, and uh, there is also, you know, of course, other factors that influence the amount of production that you're going to get, such as 
uh, shading from nearby objects like trees or buildings, um, the orientation and the angle that the panels are mounted at. Um, in Alberta, you know, you want the panels to face, you know, directly due south, ideally. Uh, and then you want to have those panels you know, in a perfect scenario, kind of between, you know, 15 to 45 degrees, um, which, uh, you know, those are the perfect site conditions. However, you know, if you look at, you know, mounting panels at 20 degrees facing south versus say, facing west at 20 degrees, you know, your production difference isn't going to be huge. It's going to be maybe 10 11% less, but not a, not a massive factor. So um, typically we say, you know, anything facing west, south, or east, or anywhere in between is, is perfectly fine. Uh, you just want to kind of, you know, get away from situations where the panels might be facing, you know, northeast or northwest or fully north, just because the production can be quite poor uh, at that orientation. Um, in terms of, you know, how you actually calculate how much energy a system is expected to produce, so an energy production forecast. Um, you know, your installation company should be able to provide that for you. Um, and there's a variety of different tools that are that are used to create that production forecast. Um, I mean, we're we're pretty. I'm pretty fortunate at uh, at KCP uh, only because you know the company's been around for 13 years, and uh, therefore they have 13 years of uh, of production data that I'm able to use and. Uh, uh, to provide, you know, pretty accurate production forecasts. But I mean, any any company that's that's worth their salt will be uh, will be able to provide you that kind of energy generation forecast for you know twenty five or thirty years, no problem. Um, one way of getting uh, all the information you need uh, to see if uh, a solar energy system is going to make sense for your farm uh, is is of course the system proposal. Um, you can kind of get you can get these from from an installation company um, and. You know, the typical process would be to find an installer, they're going to provide you a preliminary assessment that's going to show the estimated production, the system costs, and the general economics associated to the system as well. Um, and if the preliminary numbers make sense for the farm owner, the installer will come out and do a site visit to make sure that the system's going to fit with the existing electrical equipment. Um, and then uh, make sure there isn't any other kind of, kind of, kind of concerns like shading, or other site-specific issues that could affect the performance or installation or you know, code validity or code requirements. Um, sometimes a site visit may not provide all of the information required, uh, in which case you can always apply to the utility for, for more site-specific information, such as the transformer size that feeds that property um, or the voltage that also feeds that property. And just to make sure that there's you know, no changes to the electrical service uh, that are required to actually install that system. Um, so now that we know how, how big uh, or how you can size the system and how much energy it's going to generate, we can look at actually how you would go about applying for the microgeneration system. Um, so there's a few, um, you know, under the application process, there's, there's a few rules, but overall the application process is quite, quite straightforward in Alberta uh, compared to other jurisdictions in Canada. Um, this is typically going to be complete, completed by the installation company as it requires some electrical engineering engineering documentation to be provided. Um, and um, as well, there's going to be a site plan that they need to put together so the utility kind of knows electrically what's happening, but also physically where the, where the equipment is going. Um, Microgeneration systems are required to meet a few key requirements as well. Uh, they have to be connected to the grid distribution system. Um, so a microgeneration system couldn't be essentially an off-grid system. It'd have to be physically connected to the power grid. Um, they must be connected to the grid distribution system, comply with all applicable construction codes uh, and permitting requirements. 
Um, they cannot be any more than 5,000 kilowatts in size. Uh, and as we saw before, the annual solar generation shouldn't exceed the annual site consumption uh, for energy. Um, the application, you know, once, once you have it together and submit it, uh, typically it takes about one to two weeks to receive notice uh, from the utility, whether it's been approved or not. Um, assuming it was designed correctly, it will be approved. Uh, and once approved, you can uh, obtain municipal permits um, and proceed with the actual installation. Uh, after the installation is complete, uh, you need to have an electrical inspection. Um, and once that is approved, the utility comes out and they install a bi-directional energy meter uh, at no charge to the customer. Um, and then once that uh, bi-directional meter is installed, you can have the installation company back out to commission the system. And once it's commissioned, it will start producing power. Um, so those are kind of the, uh, the basics on the application. Um, so now that we kind of know, you know how big the system can be and how we'd actually go about applying for it, you know, what are some of the uh, you know, specifics and uh, equipment options that are available because there are quite a few. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's kind of three, three main components to a solar energy system. You've got your panels, um, and then your panels are going to be mounted on the, the system, a racking system, so a variety of different racking systems. Uh, and then, of course, you have your inverter system, which is going to, uh, you know, convert that DC electricity to AC. Um, the solar panels are, are definitely, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest ticket item when it comes to the quote, you know, they represent usually anywhere from 30 to 40% of the total system cost. Um, so it's really important to know what you're getting. Um, there are a lot of different types of manufacturers, panels, solar cell materials, and a lot of other different characteristics to, to panels. But uh, what I'm going to focus on here is kind of the two main different types of panels, which are monofacial and bifacial panels. Um, a bifacial solar panel just essentially means that they have glass on the front and the back side of the panel, uh, which actually allows the panel to produce energy from both the back side and then also from light reflecting off of the ground onto the back side of the panel. So a bifacial panel is going to produce, you know, anywhere from maybe four to seven percent more energy than a, than a monofacial panel. Um, and of course, for that reason, they also cost a little bit more, but often we find in a, you know, a ground mounted scenario, um, which is pretty typical for, for a lot of farms that a bifacial panel is always going to produce better overall economics, uh, than a monofacial, uh, just because, especially when you get a lot of the snow building up on the ground, uh, you get a huge amount of light reflecting off of that snow, which is just, uh, you know, it's lost energy if you don't capture it. So, um, yeah, they, they produce, yeah, about, yeah, five to 7% more on a typical ground mounted system. So usually a, a good idea to, to consider those. Um, and then, um, another important factor is going to be the actual wattage of the panel. Um, you know, new panels that are produced today, uh, they kind of range from around 300 to 600 watts now. It's funny, I actually had 500 written in my notes here, but since I did this presentation a few months ago, it's now 600. So, you know, that's kind of, that kind of shows you the pace of uh, development and efficiency that some of these manufacturers are coming out with. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I would say the typical panels that we're using on a lot of our ground mounted installations on farms are, you know, in the 400 to 445 watt range, uh, just because we find that's kind of the best, the best price, uh, price point for production level. Um, because as you increase in panel wattage, you also increase in cell efficiency. And as that cell becomes more efficient, it's, you know, it's going to be more leading edge technology and they're going to be a lot more expensive. Um, so, so yeah, usually around that 400 to 450 watt range is what we find seems to be the sweet spot these days. Um, 
when it comes to, you know, the next big, uh, you know, one of the other big pieces of uh, equipment uh, that kind of comprises the system would be the racking system. Um, and, uh, you know, there's going to be, you know, your two main categories are going to be roof mounted and ground mounted systems. Um, you know, roof mounted is, is often preferable if you can do it, uh, only because they cost quite a bit less and therefore they provide more economic benefit overall. Um, but uh, as a system gets bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, there, is a, there is definitely a tipping point where it's going to make more sense to do a ground mounted system, only because, you know, you're going to max out how big uh, a roof can actually be and how much it can support in terms of both weight and panels. Um, and uh, so, I mean, typically we'll see for, you know, maybe installations over um, on a farm, you know, usually if it's over 50 kilowatts, it usually ends up going to a ground mounted system. Uh, but if anything, anything below that, if you have, you know, a good roof that can hold panels, that would be the, the, you know, the best option to look at first. Um, the other uh, main component is the, the inverter system. Um, you know, there's, I mean, there's kind of, you know, inverter systems are going to be um, a variety of different sizes and voltages, depending on what the site actually, you know, uses for power. Most farms are going to be uh, single phase power, so 240, 120 volt split phase single phase power. Um, if you get into large commercial farming operations, you might have three phase powers, um, and uh, you know there's going to be inverter solutions that can uh, output the required voltage for any kind of any specific type of site or voltage. Um, and the other two main categories of inverters as well, you know, aside from, you know, your voltage inside are going to be string versus microinverters. And that's what you can actually see on uh, the top right of the, uh, of the slide. So the top one there, that would be, you know, a string inverter and the bottom would be a microinverter. So that string inverter, essentially what that means is you're going to have a bunch of panels all connected together in a, in a series or a string. And each of those strings of panels kind of goes back and feeds directly into the inverter. Uh, with a microinverter system, it's more of a you know a one to one or a one to two ratio. So you'd have either one or two panels per microinverter. Um, these are advantageous, I'd say, more so in um, in residential applications where you might have some shading. Maybe you have some trees trees nearby that cast some shade onto the roof. Um, you know, the microinverters are going to help adjust the production per panel uh, with uh, with shading concerns. Um, but I would say by and large on almost every farming installation that uh, the string inverter is going to be the go-to because they cost less and they perform just as well as a, as a microinverter in that type of situation. As Lee said, there's a bunch of solar companies out there right now. And I know for most of us, when we're looking for a mechanic, a carpenter, or an electrician, we usually rely on word of mouth. I'm not saying you can't do that with renewable energy. I'm just assuming that most of us don't know somebody with a solar array, but maybe you do. So figuring out which company to go with might take a little bit more work than, for example, finding a new mechanic shop for your truck. But here are a few things to keep in mind when you're looking into companies. You know, I would say it is a new industry in Alberta. There's not a lot of, you know, we've been around for 13 years, but I think we're the second oldest company in the province. Um, there's, there's quite a few solar providers in the province. Um, when you reach out and, uh, and ask somebody, you know, about, uh, about their process, about their equipment or installation or warranty or anything like that, just, just make sure that, um, you know, you dig a little bit below the surface. You know, for example, if they say they have a five-year warranty, like ask them to send, ask them to send you their warranty documentation that says that, that actually lays out what that workmanship warranty entails because a lot of people 
you know, we'll take take that for their, you know, on someone's word that's a five-year warranty and they assume that, you know, it's comprehensive, but, you know, in the fine print of your contract or whatever, it might not be so uh, explicit. Um, so always make sure that, you you know, you ask for the, for the details, um, especially, you know, when it comes to the energy rate or the energy forecast that is, you know, used to create the financials of the system. It's really important that, uh, that you do that because Alberta probably has one of the most complicated electricity frameworks in the entire of Canada uh, because it's deregulated. Well, not even 100% deregulated. Some things are, you know, managed by the government, like transmission networks and distribution versus the actual creation and generation of energy is completely privatized. So, you know, anybody can, can start their own power plant and sell energy to whoever they want. Um, so it makes for a fairly complicated uh, system with a lot of different rates and structures and user types. So just make sure you kind of dig into the details to make sure you know what you're getting. The way that I typically look at manufacturers isn't by necessarily their, you know, the quality of their panel, because um, it's kind of, um, you know, anybody can say anything about the quality of the panel, right, when you read it. Uh, what really matters is the bankability of the company to support the warranty. So what that means is when we look at, you know, we do large scale procurement of panels, you know, that are worth millions of dollars. And we want to make sure that if there's ever any issues with those panels, 15, 20 years down the road, that that company is still going to be around. Um, so, you know, we often uh, buy from companies that are um, not just focused in manufacturing solar panels. They actually have a variety of different business lines. Um, and uh, I mean, yeah, the majority of the, the components are manufactured like the components are all manufactured in different places then assembled at assembly plants for the panels, right? So it's a very, um, you know, globally gl distributed manufacturing industry. Some that's, there are actually some panels that are assembled in Canada um, and uh, in Ontario, but I mean, that's, there's only really, I think there's one manufacturer in, uh, in Ontario that does that. And they don't really, they actually service pretty much 100% of the panels go to the US because they're too expensive for Canada and they're more specialty. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's kind of, uh, where it happens. Most of them come from Thailand, South Korea, Vietnam. Uh, we're actually, we actually have a tariff on Chinese made solar panels in, uh, in Canada. Um, so we don't actually have any Chinese made solar panels that are allowed to be installed here. Um, so they come from, from other uh, parts of the world. Also, if you're worried that it's going to be on you to make sure that the system's working well for 25 years, usually annual checkups are included in the costs of your system. Yes, so um, for that smaller system, uh, like the, I believe it was um, the $30,000 system, uh, that includes a uh, one annual site visit valued at $150. So basically it's, uh, you know, uh, one guy coming out there for two hours um, and, uh, and doing an assessment, doing some checks, and then uh, it wouldn't include, um, you know, you know, performing any fixes that he, of, of deficiencies that, that are found, but that is, you know, that's your annual system checkup cost. And then on the larger system, uh, I believe it was $1,000, um, only because there's some different equipment that's usually used on, on larger systems, and you have to have two people there as well. Um, so it's, it's about $1,000 uh, that was included in those uh, economics um, for operation and maintenance costs. Okay, so now we understand how solar works. We know how to size a system, and we know what the different components are. Now Lee is going to go over the benefits of owning and operating your own solar system. Um, so yeah, now that uh, we have a little bit of uh, knowledge on some of the components, why don't we look at some of the benefits that uh, these systems actually offer to uh, you know potential owners? 
Um, you know, so why would why would a farm consider going solar? Um, well, I mean, the the technology, although it might be new to Canada, it's it's pretty established globally. Um, you know, there's a, a system gets installed every five minutes in the U.S. Um, just, to, just to give you some, some kind of some scope or scale of uh, of how prolific these are. Um, and you know, the the industry in Canada, you know, compared to the U.S., um, if you you know account for population difference, um, you know, we're, the industry in Canada is about ten times smaller here. Um, so you know, we still have a lot of catching up to do. Um, and especially in Western Canada, most of the installations in Canada are in Ontario. Um, but uh, again, very proven technology. Um, of course, one of the main reasons that people go with solar is to save money on energy costs, pretty straightforward there. Um, power prices are increasing. Um, and uh, one way to essentially hedge yourself or create, um, create a situation where, you know, you're somewhat indifferent to the increasing power prices is to buy a solar energy system. The reason there is when you buy a system, you're essentially pre-purchasing energy for 25 years at a fixed rate. Uh, and that fixed rate is already substantially lower than what the utility prices can offer. Um, and if you look at, you know, these are the different uh, wire service providers uh, in, um, in Alberta in this graph here. And as you can see from, well, this is 2004 to 2018, um, you know, the transmission charges are going up substantially. This is just for transmission costs, but um, I believe the statistics are transmission rates, if you look at the past 10 years, are increasing at about 20% per year. Distribution costs are increasing at 9.5% a year, and energy costs are increasing at about 1.5% per year. Um, so pretty substantial increases across all of the things that go towards what makes up your total energy bill. Um, so. Uh, that's a lot of the reason that uh, the people go with this is you know they're they're kind of worried about uh, increasing prices so they want to lock in a low rate um, another reason is because especially right now there's pretty low financing rates that are available specifically for agricultural producers um, some of you might be aware but um, you know there's there's actually um, I believe it's Canadian agricultural agricultural producer the cap program offers financing at, at very low rates uh, and then we also work with uh, with ATB Financial, who has a solar financing program that have uh, I think believe their their rate for agricultural producers is prime plus one percent, which would be three point four five percent right now. Um, the reason that those low interest rates are are really appealing specifically for solar energy systems is when you look at you know taking out a loan for maybe ten or fifteen years to pay off the system. When you look at what that monthly cost is to actually um, pay off that system over time. Often the case is your the amount of energy you're actually saving per month is more than you actually have to pay for to finance that system. So you know with zero dollars out of pocket, you could effectively be saving money. You know in your first month uh, going forward. So that's you know obviously still better as a on a on the return side to uh, to pay in cash. But I mean not everybody has has thirty to fifty grand in cash sitting around. Um, and uh, so the financing options can be a really good way to, uh, to help reduce overall energy costs for a farm. Um, there's also some special tax treatment for, for solar energy systems. Um, the Canada Revenue Agency, um, they'll actually allow you to depreciate 100% of the system's cost in its first year of operation. So what does that mean for you know, your typical you know, farmer? Um, say if uh, you know, the system costs $30,000, um, essentially, for your revenue in that year, you're able to reduce your taxable revenue by the entire cost of the system. So essentially that system is about 23% cheaper 
if you can depreciate 100% of its cost in its first year, 23% being uh, your corporate tax rate in Alberta. Um, so that's why, uh, you know, for, for producers that, you know, especially this year, I know, uh, I know a lot of grain farmers had really good years this year, uh, just because there was, uh, you know, phenomenal overall weather. Um, you know, anyone who's going to realize a big, a big profit this year, they're actually going to have to pay, of course, tax on that profit. So this could be a good way to potentially avoid some taxes um, with, uh, with, you know, buying a system that you can then depreciate and reduce your taxable revenue. Um, and then uh, I guess last but not least is just lower overall operation costs for, you know, for yourselves and also for a next generation. So if the farm is, is passing hands onto that next generation, uh, that can be uh, a nice little present to them is, is having some low guaranteed electricity costs uh, that reduce your overall operating costs of that farm going forward. Um, so um, kind of following along with uh, some of these benefits, this kind of, uh, kind of somewhat explains that the tax benefit that I was talking about. Um, so again, 100% of the system system's cost can be uh, uh, depreciated in the first year, um, and uh, this is you're able to do this up until 2023, uh, and then after after that, you are not able to claim that 100% in its first year, but you'd have to kind of split that up over multiple years. Um, so those are some of the basic benefits uh, of solar. So uh, we'll kind of look at maybe some of the financial uh, impacts that these kind of systems can have on a, on a typical farm. Um, so when you're kind of looking at the economic viability of a, of a solar energy system, uh, there are some primary factors that drive system financials. Uh, first and foremost is the amount of energy the system actually produces. Um, so in the event the building or area that's being considered um, has factors that significantly reduce the production potential, uh, such as shading from trees or buildings, um, that might not be the best spot to, to place those solar panels. Um, I mean, on farms, it's pretty rare uh, that there's not uh, some available space we can find for, for some panels. Um, but uh, I mean, the other thing when you're kind of trying to site where you want to put that, you also want to try and put it uh, as close to where you're able to connect in uh, to the electrical system as well, because the further away you are, you know, the more wire you're going to require, the more it'll cost. Um, yeah, the, uh, the next would be... Um, uh, aside from space would be, you know, making sure that your uh, energy generation forecast is, of course, accurate, um, because that's what your entire system financials are going to be based on. Um, so, you know, ask your installation company at, uh, at what degree of certainty, you know, they are providing these financials. And I mean, some, you know, some companies might even provide a, a production guarantee uh, within a, a certain parameter. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of questions you want to ask to make sure that, you know, they're, uh, they're actually giving you the what they what they believe to be a very accurate uh, forecast because if it's significantly more, of course, the financials are going to be way off. Um, and what else? Um, yeah, electricity cost. Uh, that's the other kind of main factor that drive the uh, the system financials. Um, now, electricity costs are going to vary uh, throughout different areas of the province. Um, and uh, in Alberta, you know, your typical rate for your energy costs is gonna be about maybe six to eight cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and then there's also other utility uh, uh, rate offers and structures that are very specific to people that have a solar energy system. Uh, and essentially it allows them to have kind of two different rates. They have a summer rate and a winter rate. Um, you know, and they have the winter rate would be a low rate uh, so that in the winter time when you're not producing very much uh, solar power and you're using a lot of energy to, uh, to heat your home, 
um, you know, you're gonna have that low rate. And then in the summertime, when you're producing, you know, substantially more energy often than the farm actually requires, um, you have a high rate so that when you sell all that energy back to the grid, um, you know, you're actually selling that for a high rate. So it, it reduces the, the payback on the system and, uh, in, you know, increases the overall, you know, financial performance. Um, now, when it comes to your, you know, what the total cost you pay on your bill is, it's kind of split up into um, your distribution, transmission, rate riders, and energy costs. So that six to eight cents is just the cost of energy that your retailer charges you. Um, there's also some, uh, some, I guess, fixed and variable costs as well uh, within your transmission and distribution fees. Um, distribution and transmission, um, I would say, make up about two thirds of your bill. And of that, you know, of that, you know, 66 percent, uh, 33 of it is what you consider variable. Um, variable energy charges are essentially what types of charges that, you know, the more energy you use, the more you'll actually have to pay. These are kind of different than demand charges. And some of you might have seen that on your bill, depending on on what type of uh, service you have. and then. Um, depending on the type of service you have as well. Um, you know, there's a typical farm service, but you might have a grain drying service or an irrigation service or some large commercial farming operations will actually have like a large general service. Um, all those different types of services also carry with them different variable and fixed fees and, and how that's split up. Um, so again, it's really important that when you're when you're looking and evaluating um, a solar energy system and for its financial impact, that you're understanding um, what the total variable energy rate is that's being used in the calculations. And uh, if you ask that uh, from your uh, installation provider, they should be able to supply the problem. Um, total installation cost is, uh, is another major factor that influences the system's econ economics as well. Um, you know, system cost is gonna be largely based on the total system size. Um, you know, the bigger the system gets, uh, the you know, the cost per panel will reduce as that system increases in size. So a lot of economies of scale when it comes to solar. Um, and of course, you know, how, how you mount that as well is another big consideration. So, you know, the, you know, the best over, the best performing systems are going to be large roof mounted systems, um, just because the, the cost per panel is going to be quite low uh, for the installation. Um, and uh, because farm systems do range so much in size, uh, and, and also how much, you know, and how much power they use. Um, I, uh, I wanted to show kind of, you know, a bit of a range on how much they actually cost. So, you know, if you look at the installation costs of, you know, $1.75 to $2.50 per watt, um, you know, that's just going to be multiplied by uh, the number of panels multiplied by the number of watts that panel has. So your total system watts uh, by your total cost per watt, that's a pretty typical metric that you'll see uh, for solar energy. It just allows people to uh, evaluate one system to another that might be at different sizes. Um, a good way to, uh, to estimate how much a system might cost in terms of how many kilowatt hours per, uh, you use per year, um, and that'll give you kind of a rough idea of the of the potential system cost. So, for example, if your farm uses twenty thousand kilowatt hours per year, um, you know, and you want to try and offset maybe hundred percent of that, um, you know, it might cost somewhere around about forty thousand dollars for that system, just as a very you know rough uh, rough rough estimate. Depending on how you purchase the system, can also um, you know impact the financials of that system. Um, for example, if you're financing the system that's going to carry interest charges and those interest charges 
um, of course, are going to um, you know increase the system's overall payback period. Um, but if you end up paying uh, more for the system in total, um, with you know, although you would end up paying more for the system in total if you finance it, um, sometimes it can produce a better return uh, only because uh, you're not having to pay that big initial upfront cost. And as you pay that system off over time, you know the price of electricity is also increasing during that during those time periods. Um, so that can offset some of those some of those inf interest charges. But from a, a simple payback um, calculation, you know the uh, paying cash up front is always going to be the best. But on return on investment, um, sometimes financing the system will actually produce a higher return on investment if you can get a low financing rate. And um, and of course, if you're going to be um, if you're going to be able to uh, save more money per month than you would actually um, be paying in, in financing payments per month. However, in Alberta, um, there's another way that you can produce some additional revenue from the system, and that's with uh, carbon credits. Um, some farms already take advantage of these types of carbon credits through uh, carbon credit aggregators. So, you know, no-till, um, tilling, I believe, is one, one area where that is realized in a lot of farms in the province. Um, and uh, essentially what happens is uh, large industrial facilities will buy carbon credits from aggregators to offset their industrial operations. Um, and as a rule of, rule of thumb, I mean, the carbon credits for solar are usually somewhere around the 1.5 cents per kilowatt hour is what you could expect to receive. So not, not terrible uh, considering, you know, your energy uh, rate uh, is usually around six to eight cents per kilowatt hour. Last July, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada announced they were investing $165 million into a new Agriculture Clean Technology, or ACT, program. Much like FEEP was in Alberta, this is a cost-share program. AAFC will cover up to 50% of a solar system. AAFC is also looking to fund projects that are at least $50,000 in value. And just to give you an idea here, 40 solar panels going on top of a roof roughly runs you about $30,000 in Alberta. Also, I should point this out, and even though this is an on-farm solar episode, solar is not the only technology this program will fund. Pretty much any energy efficient farm tech that reduces the carbon footprint of your farm or ranch will probably fit into this program. A few things before you start filling out that application. I know it doesn't look like much, looks like three pages, but maybe you know this from previous experience. When you start filling out those applications, three pages becomes 10 pages very, very quickly. And by the way, you want the application for the adoption stream. First thing I wanted to point out is this program turned out to be super popular. And right now there's a little note on AFC's website that they can't fund any programs that start before April of 2022 because they receive so many applications. This is not a reason not to apply. There's also a note on the website that says AFC will accept applications all the way up to March of 2022. It's just something to keep in mind. If you already have a solar company in mind that you want to work with, maybe try and get them to help you with the application. There's some questions in that application like, 
what are the estimated greenhouse gas reduction potentials of your project that really a solar company could probably answer easier than you could. I know for me, that kind of stuff or that kind of math is just way outside of my wheelhouse. I'll put a link to the ACT program and this new program called the On-Farm Climate Action Fund up on the website so you can check it out later. Funding applications aren't for the faint of heart, so good luck completing your application. Honestly, filling out funding applications is probably my least favorite part of my job, but a couple bits of advice from my limited experience doing these things. First bit of advice I can give you is use the same words and the same wording that they use in the application guide. You want to speak the language of the funder. The second thing is just don't break yourself trying to complete this application. Don't get me wrong, I realize it's a lot of money and I realize it's important. The thing is, when a program's oversubscribed like this one, you might be able to put in the perfect project proposal and you still might not get the funding just because there wasn't enough money to go around. A couple other programs closer to home that you may want to keep your eyes on for funding opportunities in the future are Emissions Reductions Alberta had a funding program specific to agriculture last year, and maybe they'll do another round sometime in the not so distant future. And the Clean Energy Improvement Program provides funding for residential solar. Speaking of the website, if you're still on the fence about solar, we have a couple of great reads on the farmer's blog about Alberta producers who went with solar. So if you go to the website and scroll all the way to the bottom, you'll find the search box, which for me, actually, I didn't realize that we had a search function on our website until we did this episode. So that was a nice little surprise. Anyways, scroll to the bottom of the website, type in either low carbon market gardening or investing in solar to read about Northern Lights Farm in Manning or Vaudet Dairy in Farintosh. Um, so with those uh, financial performance factors in mind, let's have a, uh, a quick look at um at uh, some of the um, advantages of uh, of the actual, sorry, let's look at the actual system performance on, you know, some of, some of these typical uh, system setups. Um, so for a typical family farm, uh, this is an example from Red Deer. Um, you know, this was a 15.6 kilowatt system. So there was 39 panels on there. Uh, it was roof mounted. Uh, it was a 412 roof pitch, which is about an 18 degree tilt angle, and it was facing southeast. Um, so in its first year of, uh, of production, it produced about 14,900 kilowatt hours. Um, and uh, the turnkey cost on this system was, was $30,000. Um, I mean, yeah, there's some, some site details here. So, it, you know, they've got a house shop a couple of buildings, uh, 15 kVA transformer, 200 amp service. Um, their variable cost of energy was 12 cents per kilowatt hour. And um, this system, uh, it actually offsets 78% of the farm's an annual uh, electricity usage. Um, and from the economic side, um, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna take 10 years to pay the system back, which is about a 10.7% return on investment. Um, and uh, that farmer is eligible for uh, to about $220 per year in, uh, in carbon credits. So not, uh, not a, terrible, a terrible investment considering uh, some of the you know, investments you could make in other you know, long-term RRSPs or mutual funds. Um, 
we'll look at a, a large uh, microgenerator example. So that first one would have been a small microgenerator. This would be a large microgenerator. Um, so this is a 160 kilowatt system. So it's about 400 panels. You can kind of see those panels kind of at the very bottom of the screen there. Um, they're ground mounted facing south at 35 degrees. And uh, this system produces 215,000 kilowatt hours per year and had a turnkey installation cost of uh, $275,000. Um, it offsets about 64% of, uh, of, of this site's annual electricity usage and their variable energy cost was 11 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, a little bit better economics uh, in this situation only because as the system of course gets bigger, the, the cost per panel re is reduced. Um, so this is a 9.4 year payback, which is an 11.6% return on investment. And uh, it's eligible for $3,200 in carbon credits per year. So not, uh, again, not terrible either. Yeah, I guess uh, now that we've kind of looked at some of the system financials, um, you know, what are some of the, I guess, site and infrastructure considerations if you were to maybe uh, take a walk around the yard and see if there was, uh, you know, an ideal spot uh, for, uh, for a system on your property? Um, on the electrical side, I mean, the, the, the first thing you want to look at, if, if you can see it, would be your transformer size. Um, often you'll have a transformer kind of on a, on a power pole in the middle of your yard somewhere, and it'll, it'll have a, a rating at the very top. Um, usually say, you know, 7.5 or 10, 15, 25 kVA. That's just the, the actual rating of the transformer. Um, the other one, too, is, um, you know, how the, how the power is distributed within the site. Um, so once it comes down from that transformer to the meter, you know, often it'll go into, you know, a splitter box, which will then go to, you know, a house or a barn or, or another uh, building on the site. Um, and uh, so it's important to know what those, you know, ratings are on those. So how many average, what the average rating is. So, you know, 200 amps or 400 amps or, or whatever it may be. Um, and uh, the other one would be, um, you know, how you're actually going to get the, the power from the solar panels to wherever you're going to connect it. So if you're connecting at the pole, you know, you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to, you know, dig a, uh, uh, a trench for, to lay the conduit and wiring in um, versus if it's on the roof, uh, you need to make sure that uh, you have somewhere where you can, uh, you know, a sub panel or an electrical panel somewhere you can connect into. So just understanding, you know, where that, uh, how that power is going to get from the panels to uh, the distribution system. Uh, when it comes to the structural side, um, if you're putting it on the roof, uh, a structural um, a structural assessment and engineer design may be required. Um, I would say that you know nine times out of ten on a farm it will be. Um, and then uh, when you're looking at a ground mount, um, you know essentially you're installing a big sail in the ground, so you want to make sure that you have some uh, geotechnical and structural engineering that's done to make sure that that wind is not going to blow that thing right out of the ground. Um, and, uh, again, when it comes to, uh, a roof mounted system, um, depending on the type of material you have on the roof, you might need to make sure that the warranty on that roofing material is maintained. And that's going to be, again, probably up to, uh, up to the, uh, installation provider to advise on that and, uh, you know, advise on some of the typical ways you can make sure to maintain your warranty, depending on who the manufacturers or who carries a warranty for that roofing product. Um, and uh, if it's a flat roof, um, which is not often the case in uh, most farming applications, but often in, in commercial buildings, um, you know, there might have to be some, some different, uh, you know, 
what you call a sacrificial layer or different uh, substrates put on underneath the racking system that separate the racking system from the roofing membrane just to make sure that there's no wear and tear. Um, and uh, I suppose, um, yeah, one of the one of the last things here is making sure that uh, you have optimal system performance. So, you know, one of the ways to make sure that your uh, energy generation forecasts come true to make sure that they actually hit that forecasting level is by, you know, consistently monitoring and providing uh, maintenance to that system so that it's always operating in tip top shape. Um, you know, it's like the easiest way to to see what what's happening with the system is through the production monitoring which um, every inverter has their own platform where they allow you to uh, sign in on your smartphone or on the computer. And you can actually see live how much energy that system has producing today or yesterday, yesterday or you know, throughout the entire life of the system. Um, you know, depending on the, the setup and how big the system is, you might want to consider a revenue grade meter. Um, you know, for, for large, um, you know, large industrial farms, they'll, they'll typically go with that road just to make sure that um, they, they know exactly how much energy is being produced. And again, that's, you know, these, these production estimates, um, you know, they, they keep your installation company honest as well. You know, when, when they tell you that you're going to be generating a certain amount of energy, you want to make sure that you have a way to track that. And um, this is definitely the easiest way. And they should as well. Uh, uh, input the forecasted energy generation into the monitoring so that every time you log in and you look at it, you can kind of see how close you are to the benchmark that was provided to you. Um, again, annual maintenance checks are, are uh, always recommended, kind of similar to how you'd have your furnace looked at, you know, maybe once every year or two. Uh, you probably want to have your system looked at uh, one, at least once a year to make sure that it's in uh, tip-top condition. Um, and that you're doing physical inspections as well, uh, just because you are dealing with live power. Uh, it's probably a good idea to make sure there's not any loose connections uh, or anything that could, um, you know, result in the in the system producing less uh, less energy. Um, you know, typically with these, you're going to receive a report at the end um, that details uh, any any issues or loose connections or any um, any recommended fixes uh, that. Um, uh, that should happen uh, to make sure that the system continues to operate at uh, at optimal performance. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's most of what I have here today in terms of a very brief crash course on uh, on how you go about getting uh, solar installed, how it how it all happens, and what some of the typical benefits and system financials look like. As the race has intensified over this last year to define regenerative agriculture, I find myself wondering quite often, where does renewable energy or alternative energy fit into regenerative agriculture? Generating electricity with a very small carbon footprint doesn't exactly regenerate the soil, the land, or ecosystems, at least not directly. But it's hard to imagine off-site watering systems or rotational grazing, those practices that are pretty common practice in regenerative agriculture. It's hard to imagine those things without those portable solar energizers. So maybe solar and all those different types of renewable energy are simply tools, tools we can use to leave the land better off then we found it. Rural Roots, the Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. 
Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and social innovation labs. We produce a farmer's blog. We help rural communities develop their own community renewable energy projects. And of course, we've got this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Brenda Barrett in Alex, Marie Galanka in Athabasca, and Lance Tailfeathers in Lethbridge. The podcast receives funding from a variety of foundations based in Alberta. My parts of the podcast were recorded in Calgary, so that means my parts of the podcast were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm.